buckets in front of you. You can take, you can write on the back of those cards, whatever. I need you to write, though. It's, writing is going to be important this morning. Um, and this is what I want you to write. Uh, so, so imagine with me. Um, imagine that you bring Jesus to your, quote, day job. You bring Jesus with you to your day job. Now, I know some of us don't like work in a, in a workplace. Some of us are, are at home. We have, we're taking care of our house, uh, those different kinds of things. So wherever it is that you go, wherever it is you spend most of your days, I want you to imagine taking Jesus with you to those places. Now, you might go, okay, well, but I have the Holy Spirit in me, and I take Jesus with me wherever I go, and all that. Okay, no, I want you to, I want you to imagine bringing the physical, in the flesh, Jesus to those places. And this is, this is what I want you to write. I want you to write a word or a phrase. But keep, it, keep it as short as you can. A word or a phrase that describes how your work, your, your day job, whatever, it, whatever you do during your day would be noticeably different because you brought Jesus with you. How would it be noticeably different because you brought Jesus with you? So, uh, so here's some, as you're, as you're thinking about what to write um, for this, I, I want to give you some questions to help prompt you. Uh, maybe what would you change, uh, or what would change about your workplace because Jesus came with you? Uh, what would change about how you respond to people in your workplace because Jesus came with you? Uh, what kinds of things would Jesus say to your coworkers, the people that you work with? Um, what would you, uh, who, sorry, who would you want Jesus to meet? So as you take Jesus around, who would you want to introduce Jesus to? And so how might you do your job differently because Jesus is with you? So I just want you to write a word or a phrase, and then I'm going to ask for some audience participation. So just take, uh, take a minute, uh, shorter than a minute, take about 30 seconds, write a word or a phrase to describe how your work or your day, your day job would be noticeably different because you brought Jesus with you. And I'm going to ask three people to share that. Give you a second to write or think to store it away. Okay, what do we got? I need three people. Uh, you can raise a hand, you can just shout it out, but share with me what would be different. Peg. You keep your emotions more controlled. My goodness, yeah, that would, yeah. Self-control, okay, good, self-control. I would strive to be more self-controlled. Good, Renee. Be more patient, my goodness, yeah. Like knowing that Jesus is right there with you, watching you interact with your coworkers, we would be more patient. Uh, who else? Yeah, all the way back there. Pastor Don. Answer fewer text messages during the day because Jesus is with you. That's good, that's good, okay. Uh, now, we're going to do the same sort of exercise, but we're going to do it in a different category. So now I want you to imagine that, that Jesus is coming to stay at your house for a couple of weeks. Jesus is coming to live, the physical, in the flesh, Jesus is coming to live at your house for a couple of weeks. Um, I need you to write a word or a phrase that describes how your home 
and your neighborhood would be noticeably different because Jesus is living in your house for a couple of weeks? How would your home and your neighborhood be noticeably different because Jesus is living in your house? What neighbors would you invite over to dinner? Where would you take Jesus to? Like Jesus is, you have to like be the host for Jesus. You have to take him around in, in Bartlett or wherever it is that you live. You have to show him around. Where would you take him? How might your habits change, the habits that you do at home, your routines, how would those things change because Jesus is physically with you there in your house? What kinds of conversations would you have with Jesus? What kinds of conversations would your family have because Jesus is there? Better yet, what kind of conversations would your family not have because Jesus is there? What would change about your home or your neighborhood because Jesus is staying in your house? Take just a a couple of seconds, a few seconds to write that down. Okay, let's hear it. What do we got? We got one back there, Natalie, yeah. Okay, there you go. <laughs> That's good. No swearing, okay, cool. Thank you. Two more. Okay, go for it. Yes, I want my family members to come talk to Jesus. I want them to have a conversation with him. Absolutely. One more. Yeah. Yes. He's there in the flesh. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) <laughs> I just I just let them talk to Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. That's good. Okay. So can I can I suggest something absolutely crazy to you? Something absolutely crazy. You don't have to wait until Jesus comes back to start seeing the changes that God wants to see take place. You don't have to wait until Jesus physically shows up to see those changes take place. Which means that if if we can envision a way that our spheres of influence would be different because Jesus showed up, if we can actually see it, we can see ways that our spheres of influence would be different because Jesus showed up, then there is a possible future in which we are the ones making the kind of changes in our spheres of influence that Jesus would make. There's, like, if we can envision that future, there's a possible future for us where we are actually the ones enacting that future. We're the ones who are making it happen. So today, uh, we're going to talk about what it means for you and me to become the kind of people who do the things that Jesus would do in our spheres of influence, to become the kind of people who say the things that Jesus would say in our spheres, to, to speak the things that Jesus would speak, to see the way that Jesus sees in our spheres of influence. To, to actually be the kind of people who would love the way that Jesus loves in our spheres in order to see those spheres of influence actually impacted by Jesus. So, uh, so if you could open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to be in verse 16. Galatians 5, 16. 
So, uh, so we're in a series, uh, and Garth introduced this series to us last week. We're in a series on the fourfold gospel. If you're part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, every Christian and Missionary Alliance has this as like the basic core tenets of who Jesus is, who we believe Jesus is. And so we say, who is this Jesus? That's the series that we're in. And so if you look in your bulletin, if you actually got bulletins today, you'll see these symbols up on the screen in your bulletin. And if you spend any time walking around our building, you'll see these symbols all over the place because these symbols represent to us who Jesus is. If you go on our website, you'll look around our website and you'll see these symbols on our website because these symbols are reminders to us about who Jesus is. Christ, and so each symbol represents something different. Christ is our savior, that's the cross. Christ is our sanctifier, that's the, the thing that looks like a wine glass, but it's actually not a wine glass, it's something called a laver, and I'll explain that in a second. Uh, Christ is our healer, that's the pitcher, the pitcher of oil, and Christ is our coming king. And so each week we're looking at these different things. So, so last week, our brother Garth, he shared with crystal clarity the amazingly good news that Jesus is our Savior. He shared it with crystal clarity. He, he shared with us who does, what, what does Jesus save us from? Well, he saves us from our broken, sinful rebellion, our broken condition. And how does he save us? Well, this is how he saved us. He died for us. His blood paid the price for our sin. Who does he save? Well, he saves every single person who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead. So if you haven't listened to that sermon yet, I really encourage you, go back to our website, uh, check it out. It's on the website. Please go back and listen because this is, this is uh, the basis, this is the foundation of who Jesus is, and now we're going further. So today, we're looking at another piece of good news about Jesus, the good news that Jesus is our sanctifier. So, so sometimes in church, we use churchy words like sanctifier, and, and you might go, what does that mean? I'm so glad you asked, because I would like to tell you what that means. So I want to talk about what it means to sanctify something. So uh, first, uh, first idea that might come, it's to make something holy. And you might say, okay, Alex, but you use churchy language again. You said to make something, what does holy mean? What does it mean to make something holy? And so, so another way you could say it is to set something apart, to, to sanctify something is to set something apart. Okay, that's kind of, I, I, I get where you're going. Okay, so, so let's think of another way to say it. Um, to designate something as being of a different nature and purpose. To designate something as being of a different nature and purpose. Okay, so that's a little complex now. Uh, it, it's a little hefty. If we could boil it down, because it's not just something being a different nature and purpose, but, but it's actually making something of a better nature and purpose. And so, so I want to think of it like the simplest way we could state sanctification might be like this. It is to change something for the better. To sanctify is to change something for the better. So the symbol, um, so the symbol that we are looking at, you see it over in the corner here. This is a laver, and the laver is a symbol of washing or cleansing. In the temple, there would be this bowl and that's what this is. This is the bowl that sits in the temple. It has the water in it, which the priests would use to clean the sacrifice, to prepare the sacrifice, to make it clean, to set it apart, to designate it as uh, of being of a different nature or a different purpose. So, so uh, it's set apart for this, this different purpose. And so, so last week's good news was that Christ saves us. Garth shared that with us. But here's the thing. He doesn't just leave us. He doesn't just leave us where we are. 
But our main point this morning is this, the Jesus who saves us changes us. The Jesus who saves us changes us. So some of you may be thinking, uh, you know, I don't know if that's good news because I don't really want to change. <laughs> like you may, that thought may cross your head. You know, there are a number of things that I know like in my life, whether it's attitudes or motivations or something, like Jesus puts his finger on it sometimes and I'm like, Jesus, I don't know if you, I want you to change that. I'm kind of happy having that. Uh, but, but the reality is, as I stand on this side of many of the changes that Jesus has made in my life, as I stand on this side of that, I can tell you with certainty that it is a really, really good thing that Jesus changes us. It is really, really good news that Jesus changes us, that Jesus who saves us changes us. Okay, so we're in Galatians 5, and Paul, he's using the metaphor of walking. He's using the metaphor of walking to describe the kinds of ways that we should live our life. And so the broken pathway that we walked, we're going to look, we're going to walk through this text, we're going to look, use the metaphor of walking, the broken pathway that we walked. Verse 16 says this, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So what we are being, our, our attention is being brought to, there are contrary natures inside of us. There are contrary natures. There are things that actually are opposed to each other. So, so when you become a Christian, you approach Jesus with something that Jesus calls a deceitfully and desperately wicked heart. So when you come to Jesus, this is what you approach to Jesus. You bring nothing before Jesus except a deceitfully and desperately wicked heart. And the good news is, Jesus saves willfully broken people, people who choose to be broken while they're still broken. So he saves us, we come to Jesus, we bring nothing, and he saves us while we're still broken, which means from the moment Jesus saves us, we're working from a place of brokenness. And so when we get saved, the Holy Spirit, what we're told in, in Scripture is that the Holy Spirit, the God of the universe, so, so we uh, understand that God is Trinity, God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're, they're not divisible from each other, but they are each their own distinct person. The Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence inside of us when we trust in Jesus. He makes his home in our heart. He actually joins himself to broken vessels, and then he starts going to work on a little bit of a repair job. He starts doing things to, to fix us, to kind of right the brokenness that's inside of us. So, so what you'll see is kind of like saved people who really still want to party, they encounter a contrary desire inside of them. So they might have the desire to party, but they encounter this contrary desire to have self-control when the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of somebody. So saved people who, who are easily frustrated, they encounter a contrary desire for patience inside of them, right? Saved people who, who are greedy, what they encounter is a contrary desire inside of them to be generous because the Holy Spirit has now shown up inside of that person. And so the Holy Spirit starts revealing for us all of our broken ways of operating and all the ways that we're out of step with what God wants and here's the thing, here's the really good news, Jesus is never content to just leave us there. He's never happy to just leave us there. So verse 18 says this. It says, but if you are led by the Spirit, 
you are not under the law. Okay, so this is, this is using a lot of context that we just haven't had the chance to build up because we've not been going through Galatians, but I just want to explain to you what he's saying with led by the Spirit and under the law. So living led by the Spirit is this. It is becoming more like Jesus because his blood earned your approval before God. Becoming more like Jesus because his blood earned your approval before God. That's living led by the Spirit. Living under the law, by contrast, is this. Performing a certain set of religious actions in an effort to earn your own approval before God. It's performing a certain set of religious actions in an effort to earn your own approval before God. And so for the people, the Galatians, the people that Paul is writing to, their religious action was actually circumcision. This was the thing that you had to do. This was how you proved yourself before God. And for us, we might have different categories of religious actions that we might do to prove ourselves before God. We might go to church to prove ourselves before God. We might give enough money to prove ourselves before God. We might hold the door for people at the store to prove ourselves before God. We might be nice to strangers. We might just not steal from anyone and, and, uh, and think that as long as we do those things, as long as we check those boxes, we are approved before God. But that, that idea represents a fundament, fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. That performing, that somehow performing certain practices is the expression of true faith. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. Because when we stand before Jesus, there's no set of practices that we perform. Like even the good things that we do, and this is what we figure out, even the good things that we do are laced with false motivations. They're laced with pride. And so we are saved when we stand before Jesus. We're not, it has nothing to do with practices we perform. It is 100% purely by the grace of God and the shed blood of Jesus. And therefore, we strive to do everything we can to be like him because of what he accomplished for us. We strive to do everything we can to be like him because of what he accomplished. So if we could say it another way, it is like this when we talk about uh, living under the law and being led by the Spirit. Christian, your purpose is not primarily to perform a certain set of practices, but to become more and more like a certain person. To become more and more like a certain person. Okay, so... Uh, verse 19 goes on and then explains to us kind of this broken pathway and what it looks like. Uh, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So that's like the everything else that you can think of gets caught into that category. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So just look, look at this list. Because I know it, it's describing the ways that we used to walk, right? That's the kind of what its intention is to say. Like, you used to live like this. But I guarantee you that every single person in this room has at least one thing on this list that is still an active struggle for them. Something that they're still fighting against. So maybe it's not sexual immorality for you, but, but what about drunkenness? Maybe it's not impurity, but what about jealousy? Maybe it's not sensuality, but, but what about idolatry? Like, if we checked off all of the other boxes and we just landed on idolatry, are you going to tell me that in the last, I don't know, month, your heart has not had a higher affection for something else than it's had for Jesus? 
So we all fall into that category. Okay, so, so if that's the case, why is this list here? So part of the reason is to describe sort of the pattern of life that we're naturally going to follow and where that pattern leads. So a, a pattern of life that we would all be walking apart from the grace of God, right? But the other part of the reason is to show us something about ourselves. That even if we perform certain religious activities, we go to church, whatever it might be, we still fall into brokenness that is opposed to God's desires for us. We still fall into brokenness that is opposed to God's desires for us. We still operate in broken ways that if they're followed, lead to death. We still operate in broken ways that lead to death. So this realization, when we come to this, when we read even this list of things and go, okay, well, there are at least, there's at least one thing in there that hits me. This realization should do two things to us. The first thing it should do, it should create a crisis in us. It should create a crisis in us. So when we see our sin, when we see God's heart towards our sin, when we actually confront it and see that it's still there, we should actually, like, we should get sick of it. We should get tired of it. It should frustrate us. When we get confronted with our sin, it should lead us to a place of humility because we're tired of seeing these things in our lives, these things that keep coming up. So, so there's a 16th century theologian, his name was St. John of the Cross, and this is what he calls this experience. He calls it the dark night of the soul, the dark night of the soul. So we see our sin, we see how much our sin grieves God, and it creates grief inside of us because the things that we're doing are, create, are creating grief for the one who saved us. This dark night of the soul. So it should create a crisis in us. Then the second thing that should happen is this. Our crisis should lead us to utter dependence on Jesus. Our crisis should lead us to utter dependence on Jesus. So when it says, will not inherit the kingdom of God, there at the end, that should make every single one of us say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Because though these things may not describe the, the active pattern of our life right now, we still fall into them. And when we fall, it shows us just how much we actually need Jesus. So there's this hymn, and uh, the, uh, it, it, this is the, the words to the hymn. It says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, I come with nothing. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We should be tired of our sin, and that should make us cling tightly to Jesus. It's why we go to church. It's why we pray. It's why we read our Bible. It's why we do all of the religious practices that we do, because we know without Jesus, we are helpless. So we sing the song, uh, you know, I need the every hour. And maybe it should be like more, I need the every half hour or I need the every moment, right? So it's in this place of utter dependence on Jesus that what happens is God actually starts to bring out of us the kind of things that he wants us to see. Like when he gets us to this place of utter dependence, he starts to bring out of us the kind of things that he desires to see. So, uh, point number two in your notes, the pathway we're remade for. Galatians 5.22 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, 
peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So when we are utterly dependent on Jesus, you know what happens? The Spirit bears fruit. When we are utterly dependent on Jesus, the Spirit bears fruit. So uh, imagine uh, the person in your workplace that you need to have a better relationship with, that, that it would make a significant difference in your relationship with that person if these things kind of just fell out of you when you were talking to them. Imagine uh, these things coming out of you when you're in your home, when you're in your neighborhood. Imagine being a representative of Jesus in all of those places and these things actually being the description of how you represent him. So, so you actually like love your neighbors. You love them enough to like care for them, sure. You love them enough to tell them the truth. You, you have joy. So yeah, you have this dark night of the soul. You have this crisis because you see sin in yourself. But then when you understand how much Jesus has saved you from, like what he's actually done for you, it creates this joy in your soul. And you cling to Jesus more and more. And every moment we cling to Jesus, it creates more and more joy. We have peace. We don't have to worry about what, what our sin does for us, how it separates us from God, because Jesus paid the price for it. Now we have peace with God. Like the, the thing that is ultimately true about us, that we are approved before God the Father, that we actually have a relationship with him. We can have peace with him. That, that we get patience. That actually, like, because, because we know just how much stuff Jesus has put up with us, right? And so we learn, we learn, we increase our capacity to then be able to put up with others. Goodness, goodness, like the very characteristics of God himself kind of just fall out of us as we cling to Jesus. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of these things. Like as we become these kind of people in our spheres of influence, I wonder how our spheres of influence would look different. Like actually, truly, loving your neighbors, enough to honor the God, the image of God in them in every interaction, enough to share the truth with them with gentleness and respect. So verse 24 goes on and says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh along with his passions and desires. So for those of us who are saved, it is our utter dependence on Jesus that helps us engage this progressive process of dying to self and living to God. So we take more and more steps. As we are more dependent on Jesus, we take more and more steps. We engage a progressive process. We die to the old passions that we used to pursue, and we live out God's passions. And God actually then starts to take our passions, and he, he replaces them with his passions. So as we follow him, as we cling to Jesus, God actually puts his desires inside of our heart. It's a crazy thing, because like sometimes I don't know how to want the, thing, the, the things that God wants, but, but then as I follow God, as I cling to Jesus, I notice him. He's starting to replace place the desires in my heart that were once crooked for the things that he loves. So we die to these old passions and we live out God's passions. This is the work that Jesus does in us to make us more and more like him. So, so the last point in your notes is this. It is the power to walk like Jesus. The power to walk like Jesus. If you look through this passage, you'll notice something interesting. Verse 16 says this, but I say walk by the Spirit. Verse 18 says, but if you are led by the Spirit. Verse 22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is. Verse 25 says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
Like there's something about the Spirit here. There's something about being in tune with the Spirit. So, so uh, John 14, verses 15 through 17, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he tells them about the Spirit that he's going to send. Verse 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, that's interesting, Jesus. That sounds kind of difficult. 16 says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world can't receive, because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So, so keep my commandments, and if you'll love me, you'll keep my commandments. You're not going to naturally be able to do this, but you know what? I'm going to give you a helper, somebody who's going to help you do this. So I've said this several times, but when we become Christians, we receive the Holy Spirit. And then Scripture also talks about something. So there's the receiving of the Holy Spirit, but Scripture talks about something called the filling of the Spirit. So like there, it, it's like, okay, yes, we have the Spirit, but we can always have more of the Spirit. Because there's like, there's like this space that's, that's stuck with all of our passions and all of our desires and all of our lusts inside of us. And so, so like we ask for the filling of the Spirit to clear out that space so the Spirit can take up residence in those spaces, right? So the, the filling of the Spirit. Uh, this is what uh, Jesus says. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow torrents of living water. So like the implication is, as the Spirit takes up more and more residence, the Spirit starts kind of pouring out of us, like starts falling out of us, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all these things just kind of fill up our spheres of influence because they're overflowing out of us. So the Spirit, the Spirit supplies our power for these things. The Spirit is actually the one who gives us the power to become more and more like Jesus. And you know what? More of the Spirit is always available to us if we ask. More of the Spirit is always available to us if we ask. Okay, so what? So what? Am I content to play in the shallow end of the pool? So, so I suspect many of us, we don't see Jesus at work in our lives as much as we would like to see him at work because we're choosing to engage our lives in ways that are really comfortable to us, in ways that we can understand, in ways that we can grasp, in ways that are easy. I suspect that most of us are content to kind of play in the shallow end of the pool, so I want to ask a what-if question this morning. What if you started stepping into situations where your only chance of success was that the Spirit would actually provide you the resources you need. That you started stepping into situations that you can't, you have no control over, you don't even have the resources for. What if you started having redemptive conversations with friends and neighbors where your only hope of speaking the right words to them is if the Spirit gives you the words to speak? What if you allow Jesus to regularly put you in situations where you need to pray and fast in order to seek God's will and God's understanding in, in order to know the right and the best way to move forward? What if that was like your only hope was being filled with the Spirit? You know, I think if, if we're more willing to step beyond what's comfortable for us, if we were maybe even more content to play in the deep end of the pool, then I wonder how might we see Jesus sanctify us in order to meet the challenge of the situation as they approach. Okay, number two. I want everybody in this room, this is a hard thing to do, start praying a scary prayer. Lord, do whatever you have to do 
to make me like Jesus. Do whatever you have to do to make me like Jesus. I tell you the times in my life that I prayed this prayer, uh, some would look at it and call it a mistake because he starts throwing you into situations where you have no choice but to be utterly dependent on him. You have absolutely no choice but to be utterly dependent on him. But the fruit, the fruit that comes when you pray a prayer like this, when he throws you into situations where you have no choice but to rely on him, you actually start to see Jesus do his work through you. You actually start to be able to point to different times and situations in your life where you know without a doubt that Jesus is indeed at work inside of you. So I'd encourage you to pray that prayer. That is a good New Year's prayer. Jesus, whatever you have to do to make me more like you, just do it. Okay, so this morning we're going to celebrate communion. And the reason we call communion a celebration is because we recognize something. We recognize where we would be apart from Jesus, and then we recognize exactly what it is Jesus has accomplished to, accomp- to, to, to win our salvation, but not only our salvation, to actually like change us to make us become the kind of people that he wants us to become. So without Jesus, we would actually, we would have to pay the wages for our sin. But because Jesus paid those wages on our behalf, we can have a life-giving relationship with the God of the universe. That's what we're told. So this morning, we're gonna celebrate communion by remembering Jesus' sacrifice for us. So in a moment, the ushers are gonna pass plates. The plates have bread and juice for them. The bread represents for us Jesus' broken body, and the juice represents Jesus' shed blood. These are the things that Jesus did in order to accomplish our salvation. So we practice an open communion here, which means if you're a Christian and you're joining us this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus, we would invite you to partake with us. But if you're not a believer in Jesus or a follower of Jesus this morning, we'd ask that as the plates pass, that you'd simply let the plates go by. Uh, in a moment, we're gonna, we're gonna take a moment of silence and we're gonna reflect. And this is what I want you to reflect on this morning as we prepare for communion. I want you to ask the question, where do you need to see Jesus make the biggest change inside of you. As you look at your life, as you look what Jesus wants to do, where do you need to see Jesus make the biggest change? Maybe you find yourself getting more anxious than you probably should. Maybe you're not actually taking your walk with Jesus seriously. Maybe you need to, to dig into scripture more often to, to, in order to even understand the things that God wants. I'd invite you uh, this morning as we prepare for communion to reflect on whatever change it is, the biggest change that you need to see God make. And then as we come to the table, we get to celebrate the fact that he's forgiven us for not having made that change already. But we also get to commit to honoring him by seeking his help to make that change. So I'd encourage you to reflect on that as we are silent together. Would you be silent with me, please?
Sing, 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 sing,